Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Stephen, and I'm speaking with Professor Chelsea Foxwell from the Department of Art History. Professor Foxwell is an Associate Professor of Art History, East Asian Languages and Civilizations, and the College, as well as a member of the Committee on Japanese Studies and the Center for the Art of East Asia. She's the author of Making Modern Japanese Style Painting, Kano Hogai and the Search for Images, and was the co-curator of the exhibition A Wash in Color, French and Japanese Prints at the Smart Museum of Art. As you'll hear, she's also working on another exhibition coming in the fall of 2023. She's here today to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Professor Foxwell, thank you so much for joining us on the course. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just uh, right off the bat, um, just quickly tell us what your position is, what you do, and uh, how you would explain your research interests to a layperson. Sure. I am an art historian. I specialize in the arts of Japan. So I am a associate professor here in the art history department uh, with an uh, appointment as well in the East Asian Languages and Civilizations department. So within Japanese art, I teach everything from prehistory to contemporary art. And um, my focus of my research tends to be on the 18th and 19th centuries, sometimes even a little bit into the 20th century. And the oldest thing that I ever wrote an article on was a Japanese picture hand scroll from the year 1299. Well, um, we're, we're going to get more into your research and just sort of what your, your job entails these days. But uh, first, I want to go way back in your biography and um, ask, what did you think you were going to do when you were young? I mean, uh, you know, did you, did you have a job in mind when you were a kid? No, not really. Most of the people whom I knew in my childhood had pretty uh, standard jobs. And my father actually had one of the more interesting jobs of of people that I knew. He had his own business uh, and he was a picture framer and he also sold craft object items like to make to make crafts or, you know, embroidery or silk flowers or baskets or these kinds of things. And so I had a lot of fun as a child going through his store and, for example, looking at his inventory of googly eyes in every possible size. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. So, uh, like, what what were your interests, I guess, when you were maybe like middle or high school age um, and, and looking towards college? Uh, were you into art, art history at that time? I was uh, very interested in foreign languages and, and literature. I was a little bit interested in creative writing. I loved history. So when I was in middle school... I had an opportunity to be a kind of volunteer docent at a colonial house museum. So I'm from Connecticut and, you know, there are some old houses and artifacts dating back to, you know, the colonial period of American history. And so um, this was just really fascinating to me that I could, you know, stand inside this house that was built in the 1600s and talk to visitors, you know, show visitors around, talk to them about the family who originally lived in the house and about kind of um, the history of that region at the time. From there, there was another museum down the street, which was also a house, but this one was much more recent, built uh, at the turn of the 20th century called Hillstead Museum. And this was the house of, um, it was actually built by a young, a woman who went to school 
in Farmington, Connecticut, called Theodate Pulp, and became one of America's first licensed female architects. Um, you can see I'm about to launch onto the tour. <laughs> that I learned, you know, so I was actually when I became 16, I started working at this museum, and uh, the the family who lived in it actually collected art. They had everything from you know pre-Columbian art to, you know, paintings by Monet and Whistler and Degas and, and many other things. And um, the young woman who designed the house, Theodate Polk, when her parents died, she uh, decided to make the house into a museum, you know, right then and there. And so I think it opened as a as a little museum where you could take tours in 1946. So, um, and it, it still exists to this day. So that's how I got interested in art and people would, well, that, that was where, when I first met an art historian was when I was in high school and uh, they invited a professor from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, an art historian to come give a talk on the Impressionist paintings in the museum's collection. And I was just enthralled. And I think that was the first art history lecture that I had ever heard. Before then, people on the tour, uh, you know, visitors to the house would sometimes ask me if I wanted to become an art historian. And I thought, people don't become art historians. <laughs> Impractical, like, who can actually do that? So to me, an academic career was something that was just like, you know, how, how people dream about becoming basketball players or <laughs> Olympic <laughs> ice skaters or something. It was so far away from anything that I thought was possible. <laughs> yeah, uh, understandably, but that is a, a really cool uh, opportunity to have as a kid and a really cool resource. Uh, so can you just sort of quickly take us through, uh, you know, your career, I guess, uh, since there, like from starting an undergrad um, and, and going up to the present day? So I really became, I just like studying. <laughs> <laughs> I like learning about new things. And I was just really, really lucky and privileged and got into Harvard. And when I got there, it was just like, in you know, suddenly feeling that I could really just study anything. Uh, at one point, I guess Harvard had over 100 different libraries and they since integrated their libraries, but um, so that there are fewer of them and they're easier to manage. But at the time that I went there, there was this library, little library called Rubel, which was dedicated purely to East Asian art, only had books on East Asian art. And so I thought, if there's a library dedicated to this, then it must be an actual thing that people study. <laughs> and that's probably the first, um, the first moment that I actually imagined you know, studying East Asian art history as, as a long-term pursuit. At the time, I was interested in many different things, but it just so happened that there was um, a professor of Japanese art history at Harvard at the time, and she really encouraged me that if I was at all serious about this to start learning Japanese, because, you know, <laughs> kind of takes some time to learn Japanese. Yeah, so, that's um, an intimidating prospect. <laughs> yeah, but but I loved languages, as I said. And fortunately, Harvard just has an incredible Japanese language program. And so um, not only did I learn there, but in the summer, I was so lucky to have opportunities to actually go to Japan and study there. And I just, even though learning Japanese was such a challenge. I felt so encouraged and supported because people both in people in Japan were very encouraging. And the field of East Asian art history is quite a small field as well. And everyone whom I met was just so encouraging and 
you know, so I thought, well, I'll just keep <laughs> keep doing this and see where it takes me. <laughs> so after I graduated from college, I got a um, a scholarship from the Japanese government to study in Japan. So I did that for two years, uh, studying at the Tokyo um, University of Art and Music, today called the Tokyo University of the Arts. Then I applied to a PhD program at Columbia University in New York. So I got my MA and PhD at Columbia. I'm guessing as someone who concentrates on Japanese art, that um, your experiences abroad have been a huge part of, of your work. Um, can you, I guess, just sort of describe like, you know, what what those experiences have, have been like and, and what they've contributed to your work? Yes, I feel that I can't even list, begin to list all the people to whom I'm indebted because, you know, as you know, when you try to speak a foreign language, you, every time you open your mouth, you pretty much make a mistake, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then writing is even harder when you have to write emails. So I just, you know, feel that many people in that, you know, without people's encouragement, it would just be futile. And uh, that really at every step of the way to just be encouraged and, you know, supported and corrected. And um, another challenge with studying art history is that you have to be able to at some point see the actual works of art right and um i was studying late 19th and early 20th century art and at the time very little of those types of art even though they're not that old were in museums in the united states so i really needed to spend a lot of time going to museums and um you know 99% of the things that I wanted to see were not just hanging on the walls. I had to make an appointment and ask curators to take works of art out of storage for me so that I could study them and, you know, if permitted, take pictures of them. And, you know, that those experiences were really transformative. Yeah. Um, as you were uh, doing your PhD, uh, did you pretty much always imagine that you would, you know, go on to be an academic? Uh, I don't know. Are there other routes available to to um, people who um, study art history? Well, there's one very important route, which is um, museum work, right? Um, mm -hmm. Curatorial work. And in the PhD program here at the University of Chicago, many of our students are aiming for curatorial careers or for a career where they can combine, you know, maybe um, university teaching as well as curating, as well as many of my my colleagues, uh, my the students that I studied with in art history at Columbia, I think as well, you know, some of them became curators. as And so their main jobs would include not only making exhibitions, which of course is scholarly endeavor and results oftentimes in a publication, right? A research publication, a museum catalog, but also, you know, shopping for works of art. <laughs> Can <laughs> you imagine, you know, um, this is, this is a very important part of their job, right? That they have a budget and they have to assess the works that are in their collection and then decide, you know, with their limited funds available, what works might they acquire and of course, you know, people also might donate works uh, or helps to support purchases for things that the museum might not otherwise be able to afford. And then there are all the mystery objects that every museum has, <laughs> things in their <laughs> collection where they maybe they don't know the artist, they don't know the year, they don't even know what country it's from. <laughs> and, um, you know, being able to 
spend time researching these mystery objects and figuring out what they are and what they can tell us about art history is also very important. So um, for me, as I mentioned, when I was a child, I was interested in creative writing. And I do see art history writing as a type of creative writing, because for starters, you're using words to talk about how something looks, right? Or how something feels. And I think it's, you know, it's quite a challenge to combine historical research and also words to try to account for a very particular object and try to imagine what kind of past life it might have had. Because you used the phrase, I think it was mystery objects. Uh, I have to ask, are there any particularly cool ones that you remember from uh, your, your time in museums or, or other ones that you come across? Yes, well... For one example, there is a painting that I wrote one of my very first articles on, published articles, called Hibokanon, Kanon, or in, in Japanese, Merciful Mother Kanon. And two versions of this painting exist, uh, one in the National Museum of Asian Art, formerly known as the Fear Sackler in Washington, D.C., and also one at the uh, Tokyo University of the Arts and there is another painting in the Fear and Sackler Museum in Washington, D.C. that was previously thought to be a Chinese painting, maybe from the 15th or 16th century. And it was thought that the, the artist from the 19th century, the Japanese artist, copied this painting because they're very, very close. Mm-hmm. And I think that the museum is now closer to speculating that this earlier painting was actually a modern, shall we just say a fake, a modern <laughs> fake of an earlier religious painting of a you know, bodhisattva, a Buddhist um, a Buddhist kind of deity um, that was made after the, the 19th century painting, but made to look old, deliberately made to look old. <laughs> and so uh, it's kind of an unsolved mystery, but it, it's, a, it's a big difference, right? It's either one or the other. It's either... A, 16th century Chinese painting, or it's a, you know, late 19th or early 20th century Japanese painting made to look old and, you know, kind of the jury's out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I realized that I, I guess I sort of skipped over, um, you know, asking about how you actually got interested in Japanese art specifically and, and chose to go down that route. I mean, was there a point, I guess, when, when you were in college where you decided, I, I think I really want to pursue this? Yes, I think I was converted to art history and shortly after then kind of converted to to Asian art or East Asian art. I guess my first encounter with Japanese art was, as many people know, the French Impressionists, as well as other artists of the time period, like the American artist Whistler, were very interested in Japanese art in, in the late 19th century, in the 1870s, 1880s. And then after that, really, there was a wave of enthusiasm for Japanese art that um, is called today Japanese or kind of Japanism, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was my first kind of exposure to Japanese art. But after I became really interested in art history, I thought, well, there's so much kind of writing and scholarship on the the European tradition. And I just wanted to do something that was kind of outside of that tradition. That tradition felt very ponderous to me, very kind of weighty. And so I thought, you know, I would love to, you know, whether it be, you know, pre-Columbian art or just was interested in kind of seeing what was outside of that tradition. 
other ways of depicting the world or just of making art that were not rooted in that same kind of Renaissance tradition from Europe. Yeah. So uh, what is happening in your field now um, with your own research, perhaps, or, or just, you know, with um, other other people around you that uh, is exciting you? That's a great question. I think, largely speaking, one thing that's been slowly happening since the 1990s in, in a lot of fields in the humanities is a kind of reinterrogation of the canon, which is, you know, like, what are the greatest hits of Japanese art or, you know, <laughs> world art, for example? And why those objects and not some other objects, right? Yeah. So um, once you start thinking of that, we start thinking, uh, what are some stories, right? Just like with history, right? We're always reassessing kind of what we're, what, what stories we're telling and what's, whose stories or <laughs> which stories might be left out, right? And so it's no different, I think, with Japanese art history. As for me, I became really interested in uh, the art of the Meiji period, which is the period after the fall of the shogun's government, right? The Tokugawa shoguns in uh, Japan's so-called opening to the West. So Japan uh, created this new government that turned out to be a constitutional monarchy and, um, you know, made the first museums, the first postal system, compulsory education, you know, railroads, just trying um, to get Japan on track with kind of the developed world at the time period. And so the art of that period was regarded for a while, both in Japan and in other places, as not, you know, really the high point of Japanese art. Um, People saw this as a time when artists were experimentally combining Euro-American drawing traditions, so kind of realism, right, verisimilitude, linear perspective, with the more traditional East Asian artistic techniques. And so um, this resulted in artworks that many people found a little bit awkward, actually. (laughs) And um, many collectors preferred art that they thought was more purely Japanese without the so-called Western influence. Of course, now we know that basically... Most art is is always an integration of the old and the new, right? Of things that were mm-hmm. known from known from within a tradition with new impetuses from outside, and that's what makes it really exciting. So, at the time that I was studying it, um, Meiji art was not very prominent in museums either in the U.S. and Japan. And right now, something that's exciting but also really challenging is that I'm working with my colleague Bradley Bailey of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston to organize an exhibition of the arts of the Meiji period. So the art, Japanese art from the late 19th and early 20th century. This exhibition is called Meiji Modern, and it's going to open in New York in next fall, the fall of 2023, and then travel to the Smart Museum of Art here at the University of Chicago in March of 2024, and then on to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. And this exhibition collects works of Japanese art from the late 19th and early 20th century that are from United States collections. So both individual collectors who have assembled art over the years, as well as museums such as the Art Institute of Chicago, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Metropolitan Museum, and we'll be showcasing this art and really taking another look at what uh, what are the distinctive trends of of the art of this period. 
That's really cool. Um, I don't think that anyone I've spoken with, uh, any of your colleagues have, have talked about organizing an exhibition. So I'm curious, like, what do you have to do to, to make that happen? Well, when I teach or when I write an article, I can pull images of works of art from all over the world and put them together in my research article or put them together on the screen, right, when I'm giving a lecture. But when I'm organizing an exhibition, there's a huge logistical challenge of the physical objects, which need to be very carefully moved, right, yeah. from wherever they're being carefully stored uh, into, into the exhibition gallery, into the same room. And a lot can be achieved by bringing the physical works of art together in the same room and really being able to see them together both on a thematic from a thematic point of view like let's take a lot of pictures of natural subject matter or let's take pictures of men and women in the Meiji period and see how notion how kind of the portrayal of of gender and kind of individuality changed in that time period as well as from a technical angle so let's bring these three enamel vases cloisonné enamel vases together and let's mm-hmm. compare them and see you know, do they use the same, you know, one may use copper wire, one may use gold or silver wire. And uh, we can see these really small uh, technical similarities and differences that can reveal new things about the object. So there's a lot of benefit of being able to bring objects together physically, but it's also a huge amount of work. But um, and then for this brief period of time, uh, several months, uh, we get to really show these things to visitors and, and enjoy them ourselves and, and talk about them and hopefully some new realizations or uh, new discoveries might come from that. Yeah, that must be so exciting to see that come together. I wanted to ask uh, something that we've been asking uh, all of your colleagues, which is just uh, what do you think is the, the most fun about your job? And uh, what, is, what is the least fun thing uh, that you can think of? I love interacting with students, and I think that a lot can be accomplished in the classroom, even though, you know, often. I think teachers at any level are always scrambling to prepare, you know, these hours of preparation that go before, you know, one or two hours of of lecturing, right, or of discussion in the classroom. So it's a lot of pressure to feel like there's only a certain number of class hours and you want to use them productively and you want to really make an impact on students. But it's also really great because uh, students have a lot of fresh insights and um, it's really exciting just to be able to talk about the questions that we are debating about or trying to find the answers to in the field and, and talk about them with students who are coming to this fresh and have a lot of really great insights. And, you know, in the process of also explaining something to other people, I often have a lot of new insights. What advice would you give to someone who uh, was interested in art in art history and uh, considering pursuing it as a career? I think languages are quite important. They take a long time to master. <laughs> and But when you have uh, different languages, you have access to a bunch of writing that not everyone has access to. And it's really interesting to be able to put different you know, different historical sources in dialogue with each other. And uh, when I read a book on a topic, I thought, oh, this is everything that that needs to be said about this topic, right? This is the world's expert just wrote a book on this topic and that's it, it's done. But then once I could access 
primary sources, so kind of those archival sources, right, then I could see that the actual documentation that we have from history is a lot messier. And wow, that scholar did an amazing job to kind of pull it all together into an analysis and into a narrative. And that these same sources have many other different stories that they can also tell. So for me, one thing that I've been working on is trying to read older sources. So 18th century or early 19th century sources are so much more difficult to read than Meiji sources from the 1870s onward. Even being able to read them somewhat just can give a lot of fresh insights. So it's worthwhile to put the time into mastering those languages. Beyond that, I would say it's important to be in touch with your passion, to read lots of books and find out who are the scholars whom you admire and uh, what are kind of the, the topics maybe that you would like to read a book on, but that book doesn't exist yet. And maybe you're going to be the one who writes it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, well, uh, we're almost out of time. And uh, just as you wrap up, uh, I just want to ask, what is the most fulfilling thing about what you do? It's just very fun to look at art, especially with other people, <laughs> uh, whether they are students or other scholars. And I love to be able to um, travel to Japan and look at art in museums, look at exhibitions, exchange ideas with other scholars or organize symposia or um, research events here. And it's just amazing to be able to find out new things on, on a regular basis. And I think it's just uh, really exciting to share those and, and discuss and debate those with other people. Thank you, Professor Foxwell, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the others. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. We'll see you around.